Good morning, guys. If you have your Bibles, open to Mark chapter 6. We're going to be in the uh, passage in Mark chapter 6 this morning, beginning in verse 30. Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 30. Mark writes a very familiar story that you guys will recognize this morning. He says, verse 30, the apostles gathered together with Jesus and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest for a while. For there were many people coming and going and they did not even have time to eat. They went away in the boat to a secluded place by themselves. And the people saw them going and many recognized them and ran there together on foot from all the cities and they got there ahead of them. And when Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd and he felt compassion for them because they were sheep like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it was already quite late, his disciples came to him and said, this place is desolate and it is already quite late. Send them away so they may go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Jesus answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and spend 200 denarii on bread and give them something to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go look. And when they found out, they said five and two fish. And we commanded them all to sit down by groups on the green grass. And they sat down in groups of hundreds and of fifties. And he took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food and he broke the loaves and he kept giving them to disciples to set before them. And he divided up the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they picked up 12 full baskets of the broken pieces and also of the fish. And there were 5,000 men who ate the loaves. Why don't you pray with me this morning? Father God, we come before you and we recognize that you are the great provider. That in barren and desolate places, you provide beyond our wildest imagination. And Father, as we end a semester and as we step toward a break, Lord, I pray that you would come into this moment and that you would teach us this morning. Pray in the midst of the finals that are still around the corner for us, Lord, I pray that you would allow us just to put aside that which is still waiting for us with just <laughs> even just an hour away. Allow us just to have a moment in your presence to hear what you have for us. I pray that you'd stretch us. I pray that you'd teach us. I pray that you'd meet with us in this time. Lord, we love you and we thank you. And just ask that you'd speak and that you move as you see fit, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, let me ask you guys this morning, how many of you do not have any finals left? All right. Identify yourselves, all right? Why are you here? I'm just kidding, all right? Uh, just know that everyone in the room is absolutely jealous of you guys, all right? And to add to that uh, group, I will tell you guys, in 24 hours from now, my wife and I and I will be and our kids off on a plane headed to Disney, all right? So as you guys are doing finals, all right, we are Disney bound. I know, I know, but this is the body of Christ. Love, all right? People love, all right? We are headed off, but for every single one of you guys, finals or not, though, you're just a few short days, all right? Just a few short days, away from utter bliss and utter relaxation, right? You know it's coming. You long for it with all that you have, all right? And you have a few short hurdles before you can get away to Christmas and enjoy all of your favorite Christmas traditions, all right? But I will tell you guys, every single one of you guys, as you land and take off for the Christmas break, by and large, are going to be incredibly tapped out and tired, all right? I recognize that so many of you guys, by the time you get done with the finals, you're going to walk away from that last final and you're going to want to sleep for a week. I know that's just how it happens, all right? And all you can imagine doing is just sleeping. You don't have any grand plans just yet. All you want to do is sleep and just get away and do nothing, right? I recognize that. But what I want to tell you guys this morning is, as we even look at a very familiar passage, I want to highlight for you guys that that lethargy, that tiredness, that fatigue, while natural, actually is incredibly dangerous as you step into Christmas break. In fact, as you think about Christmas break and your favorite Christmas traditions, one of my favorite stories from our family was for Marcy's family. One of her favorite Christmas traditions ever is the candlelight service at their church on Christmas Eve. All right. And one Christmas Eve, they do it every year. The service ends with silent night 
At some point in silent night, all right, at some point uh, they dim the lights and they start lighting candles throughout the service. And it typically can take a little while to fill and move the candle uh, from one row to the next through the entire church. And through that evening, something was happening one night, one year, and uh, Marcy's dad, who's holding a candle, his arm began to tire, all right? And as it began to tire, it began to drop and move forward, so much so that it began to light the fur coat of the individual right in front of him, all right? And so as you can imagine, as a fur coat, all right, hello, people, a fur coat, all right, goes, goes flammable on us, all right? Panic ensues, all right? People are freaking out. Uh, people are, are absolutely stressed out of their minds. It was not the, the silent kind of night that they were hoping for, right? Uh, in fact, in many ways, what was... I, absolutely ironic about that whole incident was about five, six years later when Marcy and I would be getting married in their home church in Midland, the lady that would be our wedding coordinator, our church contact was the very lady whose fur coat Marcy's dad lit on fire. All right. So here's the deal for my father-in-law to be at that moment. See fatigue can ruin even the best Christmas traditions. All right. Just a simple fatiguing of an arm as a candle goes closer and closer to a fur coat. It ruins not just fur coats. It ruins Christmas traditions. And for us, it even almost ruined our marriage. All right. That didn't happen. All right. Just kidding. All right. But fatigue, while incredibly natural for you guys, is actually incredibly dangerous as you step toward Christmas break. And what I want to do for you this morning is we look at a very, very familiar passage, a passage that many of you guys know in and out. You know the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. But what I want to do is I want to highlight it for you guys from a different angle because much of what the disciples faced as they went into that incredible moment with Jesus was the same thing that you guys faced as you head into Christmas break. I'm going to show you guys that the disciples were incredibly fatigued. They were incredibly tired. In fact, I want you guys to begin in, in verse 30 of chapter 6, because I, what I want you guys to see as we launch into this is that ultimately this story will begin with an incredibly fatigued finish. Look at verse 30 again. The apostles gathered together with Jesus, and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. Jesus had called these disciples and had sent them out and they had healed incredible diseases. They had been across different cities, preaching the gospel, inviting men and women to trust and to know Jesus Christ. And they returned to Jesus in a sense with a mission accomplished. All right. A semester in the books. All right. And they are tired and they are tapped out. I think if they were, as the narrator is highlighting, I think there's a great emphasis on all that they had ta- done and taught. Right. They were incredibly tired. They were incredibly tapped out. In fact, they were not just drained and tired, but I think if you look at the context of chapter six, the event that preceded this, the very last thing they had to do was the first part of chapter six that talks about the beheading of John the Baptist. John the Baptist that had been in prison, John the Baptist that had been arrested was then beheaded and the disciples right before this are burying the beheaded body of John the Baptist, All right. As the disciples come to Jesus in this moment in verse 30, they are not just drained, but they are incredibly discouraged. They're tired, they're tapped out and they're done. All right. As tired and as tapped out as you guys typically are going to feel, and hopefully you won't get beheaded by a final that you're going to take in the next 24 hours, all right? But the disciples, like you guys, were incredibly tired and tapped out. In fact, Jesus will recognize it in verse 31. He will invite them to rest, all right? He says in verse 31, Jesus says to them, come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest for a while. Jesus is going to recognize that for the disciples, they were tired and that it was natural, it was normal, and it was good that they would rest, all right? In fact, I'm going to argue to you guys that as the disciples would rest, as they would pursue rest, it wasn't a selfish thing at all just yet. Even as the context of verse 31 talks about it, it says that for there were many people coming and going and they did not even have time to eat. 
I think almost uh, the narrator is describing the disciples almost like they were introverts. All right. There are people coming, going all over the place and all the disciples want to do is they just want to pull away. All right. And I think for many of us who maybe are introverts like myself, all right. Uh, I feel like we get a bad rap. Uh, I feel like people don't understand us. They don't understand that we're not selfish, that we actually do like people. All right. Um, for many of you who are introverts, I, I was struck by this deal that's going around on Facebook recently about 23 signs that you may be an introvert. All right. Some of you guys who are introverts, you will grasp this immediately. Some of you who are extroverts, understand us. Number one, introverts find small talk cumbersome. All right. We like you. We just don't always like small talk. Number seven, downtime doesn't feel unproductive to an introvert. All right. For you extroverts, you always want to be doing something, being with people, but for introverts, they don't want to always be doing something. Sometimes they want to get away. Number nine, you sit, introverts sit at the end of a row, not in the middle, right? We don't always want to be in everyone's business. All right. Number 11, you are in, uh, you may be an introvert. If you find yourself in a relationship with an extrovert, all right, I married an extrovert off the charts. Number Number 13, uh, you avoid any shows that involve audience participation. All right. Uh, so you think you can dance or any of these dance shows or singing shows. Those are not the shows for introverts. All right. And number 14, and this one made me laugh hysterically. All right. You screen all of your calls, even from your friends. All right. Uh, we introverts can confess and admit that is us sometimes that introverts. And I think the disciples at large, they just were tired. All right. They wanted to get away. And whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, every single one of you guys has been in those moments or those times where you just feel tapped out and all you want to do is you want to retreat and you want to shut it down and you want to be by yourself. I laugh even during finals because a lot of you guys shut down whole areas of your life, right? You guys just go dark on social media, right? It just stops, all right, for like this week period of time during, uh, unless you're just trying to procrastinate and you're curious what people are doing, right? Um, but by and large, the disciples were tapped out, all right? In fact, the text says that they didn't even have time to eat. I'm curious for you guys over the next few days as you have finals that are upcoming, how many hours of sleep will you lose? And how many meals will you just choose not to eat because you're too busy, you're too stressed, you're just not thinking about it, all right? I think the disciples were landing themselves in a spot that's really similar to where you guys are going to land yourselves if you're not already there in just a few short days as you end finals. You're in the same spot as the disciples. Uh, and, And I think they were looking for a route to rest and to recovery. Verse 32. And so they went away in a boat to a secluded place by themselves. The disciples were looking for a winter break, so to speak. So they took away, they got away, they took off by themselves looking just to get away and to shut it down for a little time. What's really interesting, though, about the story that unfolds, you guys know the story of the feeding of the 5,000, but I think the context of the story is absolutely imperative for you to grasp exactly what Jesus was trying to teach the disciples. This was very much a part of their training moment with Jesus. This was not just a random chance event, but this is very much a part of what Jesus was wanting to teach them and where he was moving them and what he was training them for. Because what's going to happen is they're on a route toward rest and recovery, but it's going to have a bit of a detour, right? Notice verse 33. The people saw them going and many recognized them and ran there together on foot from all the cities and they got there ahead of them, all right? The disciples are wanting to get away from the crowds. They're wanting to shut ministry down. They're wanting to shut finals and studying in their work down for a bit. And all they want to do is get away. All they want to do is rest and get some recovery and some R&R and kick their feet up, all right? And as they're on a boat trying to get away, the crowds are watching them and they are running along the shore on foot faster than disciples are going by boat. And when they arrive at their destination, the people are there (laughs) with more needs and more work for the disciples. I want you guys to imagine for a moment, you finish your last final, you take a day or two in town and then you head home. And I want you guys to imagine as you head home, imagine you guys get home. You can't wait just to kick it up, kick it back, relax. And five minutes after being home, there's a knock on your door and guess who it is. It's your professor. 
with another final. All right. Can you imagine the absolute horror that would be, right? I mean, wouldn't you just absolutely lose it at that moment in time? A, how did he know your home address, right? B, why is he at your doorstep? And C, why does he have another final? Is he insane and is he crazy, right? You could not handle that, right? For the disciples, it's just the same kind of thing. Another final has showed up at the doorstep and all they wanted to do was get away and they had gotten away or so they thought. And I think what Jesus is going to do for the disciples in this moment with the feeding of the 5,000 is Jesus is going to teach them something about rest and recovery that they did not realize. Something that they didn't realize at all. Right, because they're going to have incredibly, Jesus and the disciples are going to have incredibly different responses to the situation. Notice Jesus' perspective and his response. Verse, uh, verse 34. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd and he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. When he steps on shore and he sees the people, his first instinct is that he sees a crowd. He sees people with a huge need. And his response, emotionally speaking, was one of compassion and kindness, right? And his response, therefore, in that compassion was then to teach them and to try to help them in the midst of their problems so that he could help solve it for them. In contrast to Jesus' response, though, will be the disciples. And notice what the disciples do in verse 35. When it was already quite late, his disciples came to him and said, this place is desolate and it is already quite late. Send them away so that they may go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Notice the incredible difference in response. Jesus sees a large crowd that he has compassion for because he sees past the circumstances and he sees a heart and a need that exists. The disciples, on the other hand, though, don't see a crowd. They don't see a crowd with compassion. What they see is a problem. And what they see is limitations in terms of what time it is, in terms of how much money they have, in terms of the problem that exists. Jesus sees a person with a problem that provokes his compassion. The disciples see a person with a problem that provokes their inconvenience, right? It's fascinating as you look at the dialogue because Jesus is going to turn it back on the disciples. The disciples say in verse 36, this is their recommendation to Jesus. Send them away so that they may go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. The disciples are saying, let this not be our problem, right? Send them away. Send them away before it gets too dark. Send them away before we can't feed them. Send them away so that they are not our problem, right? That's basically what they're saying. So Jesus turns it around on them and he says in verse 37, B, he answered them, you give them something to eat. It's going to be your problem. All right. I want you to be engaged in this situation. Do not check out on me. All right. And so the disciples uh, respond back sarcastically. Shall we go and spend 200 denarii, a year's worth of wages on bread and give them something to eat? Surely Jesus, you don't want us to do that. Right. Cause that's ridiculous. Right. He says to them, verse 38, and he said, how many loaves do you have? Go look. And when they found out, they said five and two fish. And he commanded them all to sit down by groups on the grass. And you know the rest of the story. Jesus takes the five loaves. He takes the two breads, uh, the two bread, uh, sorry, five loaves and the two fish. And he feeds the 5,000 so much so that there's 12 basketfuls of leftovers of the 5,000 that ate. Incrain, insane kind of provision in the midst of a desolate late time. God can provide in the midst of crazy situations, right? We know that message. We know that story over and over again. But what I want to highlight for you guys is from the disciples angle and through their eyes as they approach the situation. Did they need to learn that God could provide? Yes. But exactly how and why and in what context did they need to learn God's provision? If you guys think about the story, my question for you is in this way, 
why did Jesus choose to do this miracle in this moment in the disciples life? He could have chosen to feed the 5,000 in any other moment along his ministry. Why this moment with the disciples when they're tapped out and they're tired? Is there incredible irony that Jesus can fill the stomach of 5,000, but the disciples are wondering how they're going to get their own energy levels filled and their rest filled, right? I think Jesus is wanting to teach the disciples something about rest and recovery that they did not grasp. And I think something also that you and I don't grasp. And as he walks through the story, the feeding of the 5,000, we're going to find in the next story with Jesus walking on water that the disciples did not learn the lesson. The story ends really uh, with the feeding of the 5,000. And I want you guys to pick it up again in verse 45 and notice what happens. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get in the boat and go ahead of him to the other side of the Bethsaida. And while he himself was sending the crowd away and bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to pray. So Jesus takes the disciples, puts them back on the boat, sends them away and basically finishes up and concludes the whole situation with the 5,000. I imagine the disciples were thinking, finally, <laughs> finally, we're away from these people. Finally, we're going to get to rest. Finally, we'll get to be recovered and relax a little bit and catch some margin in our lives. All right. But notice what happens again. I think that Jesus is going to give them a second object lesson because the first lesson didn't teach them what they were to learn. Notice what happens again. Another familiar story. But I want you guys to see it from a different angle. Notice verse 46, uh, verse 47, when it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea and he was alone on the land and seeing them straining at the oars uh, for the wind was against them at about the fourth watch of the night. He came to them walking on the sea and he intended to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost and they cried out for they all saw him and were terrified. All right. There's a lot of things going on. Well, here's a couple of things that are really interesting to me is they're looking for rest. Jesus finally puts them on a boat, puts them in the middle of the lake, right? As far away from people as possible. All right. The introverts in the room are like, amen. All right. All right. Uh, they're far away from people as possible. They're finally getting this moment to finally rest. And what ends up happening? A wind comes on them. They're straining and working as hard as they can. Although they're tired and they're tapped out this break and this rest is not at all going anything like they hoped, right? The evil keep pursuing them, right? And when the people finally, and they can get away from the people, then situations and circumstances don't go accordingly to what they wanted. And so they're straining and they're straining. And then Jesus walks on the water, walks by them and they recognize him as Jesus. No, as a ghost. And they get freaked out and terrified. What is going on? Right? What is going on? I think what it reveals to us as we look at the story, even if you look at verse, uh, the narrator will tell us specifically verse 51. Then Jesus got in the boat with them and the wind stopped and they were utterly astonished. Why were they so astonished? Not just that Jesus was in the boat. and They recognized him who it was, but verse 52, for they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. Jesus wanted to teach the disciples something from the incident of the feeding of the 5,000, something that they didn't learn. The walking of the water story is object lesson number two for them to learn what rest and recovery looks like. I think for the disciples and I think for you and I, when we think of rest and we're tapped out and we're tired, what we think rest is, is utter disengagement, right? Let me just put everything and everyone down. Let me get away and let me just sleep for a week, right? I think the disciples were looking for something like that, which is why the feeding of the 5,000 and the incident of walking on the water were so astonishing to them because they couldn't get what they were looking for. All right. In fact, I think from when you and I are absolutely tapped out and tired, we, we lose all sense of bearings. And frankly, we often lose all sense of perspective and the very actions we take to get rest are often actually not restful at all. 
I'll tell you guys, as those who have had a baby before, not actually me, but my wife, all right? But those of us who have had an infant, all right? Uh, I will tell you the first three months of having an infant are a wonderful joy of absolute sleep deprivation, all right? It is literally torture sometimes, all right? You, you, all you can think about is when will I sleep again, all right? <laughs> I don't know when it's going to happen. I feel like I'm in a dark tunnel and all I can actually think about is sleep. We had some good friends of ours who had twins, all right? Which is double the pleasure and double the sleep deprivation, all right? And, and they would tell us stories of actually dreaming at times, having dreams of actually just getting in their car and taking off, all right, and leaving newborn twins behind. And they would take off not to a Disney vacation, not to a beach, but just to a place where they could do nothing more than sleep, all right? They just wanted to sleep. They wanted to absolutely disengage, do nothing, and just sleep, right? When you and I get tired, tapped out, and exhausted, we often lose perspective. And not only do we lose our bearings and our perspective, but I would argue to you guys that sometimes the very actions we take to get rest are actually not restful at all. In fact, as you think about rest and recovery this winter break, I want to challenge your paradigm on it because rest and recovery does not come from complete disengagement. I think the reason why the disciples were so astonished as they were on the boat and the waves were coming is because they had a view of rest and recovery that was not just disengagement from work, but I actually think it was from disengagement from the person of Jesus Christ. They were astonished when he walked on water because they didn't recognize him because they were so disconnected from him. They thought he was a ghost, right? It's possible for you guys, as you step into winter break, that you would not only disengage in your rest and recovery from all activity, but you could even disengage from Jesus Christ himself. And I will tell you, if you do that, you will not find rest and recovery at all. Ultimately, what Jesus is trying to show the disciples, and and I think the feeding of the 5,000, I think what he's trying to show you and I is that as we look for a route for rest and recovery, it is always in and through the person of Jesus Christ. My greatest hope for you guys this winter break as you pull away is I do hope in the next 48 hours after your last final that you will just sleep, all right? But when you get to some level of equilibrium physically, all right, where you're actually sane again and fed again, all right, uh, my really hope for you guys is that you will make a plan and that you will have a real intentional purpose of reconnecting with Jesus Christ in a really fresh and a deep way this winter. My question for you is what are you going to read? What are the biographies? What are the books of the Bible that you want to really jump into to really connect well with Jesus Christ? Where are you going to run to? How do you want to make a plan to connect well with Jesus Christ? I think a great idea that you could have over the winter break is to take an actual day with the Lord. Design a day, and not to be cheesy, but a date even with Jesus Christ. Take a day that you're going to say, hey, I'm not going to engage with others. I'm not going to engage at the house. I'm not going to engage with family, but I'm going to engage entirely and explicitly with Jesus Christ for an entire day. Maybe that means music for you. Maybe that means journaling. Maybe that means a walk at a park, but totally not 32 degrees, right? I don't know what it's going to be, all right? But I'm going to challenge you, really think through intentionally how you can rest and recover well in terms of connecting well with Jesus, all right? Do not just go on autopilot and default and kick your feet up because if you do that, you will backslide spiritually speaking. I want winter break to be an opportunity for you to press forward spiritually speaking and to know Jesus better. That's going to be my question for you guys as you return from the winter break. How did you know Jesus better than you knew him when you took off? What is it you've seen freshly about his character? What is it you've seen freshly about his purposes? What have you seen freshly about his movement in your life? That's my hope for you guys is that you'll connect well with Jesus Christ and not just with him as a person, but also with his work. Incredible opportunity unfolds in front of the disciples with the feeding of the 5,000, but they're too tired and too tapped out to engage it and to catch it for what it was. What an amazing moment in which God moved. What an amazing moment in which they could have learned much about who Jesus was. But what happens? It goes right in front of them and they miss it entirely and they do not learn from it. 
want to assure you that God has some incredible things in store for you this winter break. It is not a period of disengagement or lack of activity. It is a period for you to answer the call of God in your life. And he's got some incredible things in store for you this winter break. It is one of the most spiritually strategic opportunities and times that you have in your life as you reconnect with family and as you reconnect with friends that you know in high school. As you return home, it's not just about disengaging and, and playing video games for the next week, but it's about answering the call of what God has for you this winter break. I don't know what that's going to be. For disciples, it would land in front of them and they would, they would dis, want to disengage with it and they would groan all the way through it. But what an incredible moment that they were a part of. They didn't catch the significance of it until a whole other object lesson later, all right? And my hope for you guys is that you'll catch the significance of what God has for you this winter in the moment. That you'll be a willing participant, an engaged participant, an ambitious participant, wanting to see God move in ways beyond anything you could imagine this winter break. That's my hope and my heartbeat for you guys this winter. In fact, I was caught by a story uh, that I heard uh, recently about a Mormon bishop who in November, in readiness for a Thanksgiving sermon, dressed himself up as a hobo, all right, as a homeless man, all right? He had a uh, actual makeup artist in his church, literally uh, put sideburns, all right, uh, cut his lip, makeup, crazy hair. He looked like he was a homeless guy. And he positioned himself on a Sunday morning right outside of the steps of his church, all right? And what ended up happening through that morning is that people after people not only failed to completely recognize him at all, failed to even acknowledge him at all, but they would walk as far away as possible. And five people even asked him to leave the steps of the church. Eventually he would mosey back into the church service where he would reveal himself, not to shame the people, but to make the point that for every single one of us, we can so often miss the opportunities God's put right at our doorstep. That when we're tired, when we're tapped out, when we're stressed, when we're fatigued, when we're discouraged, we are in a very vulnerable spot to miss not only the person of God, but the purposes of God in our life. And my hope for you as you get away this break is that you wouldn't move to disengagement because when you move to disengagement, you will miss Jesus and you'll miss the work that he has for you. But that you would look in a route toward recovery, toward connecting well with Jesus Christ and keeping your eyes open to whatever it is that he would have in front of you. To remain sharp, to remain uh, in season, so to speak. This isn't off season, if you will. So I want to kind of reposition for you guys as you look at Christmas break, because I feel like there's an incredible opportunity there. Don't miss it. And what we're going to do this morning is we kind of end this morning. I want to give you guys an opportunity just to respond in worship, to have an opportunity to just come before the Lord and to wrestle with, hey, Lord, what is it you have for me? Maybe I'm already feeling incredibly tapped out and tired, and I don't know how I'm going to get to tomorrow. All right. And maybe that's your biggest concern. Either way, as you wrap up finals, my hope and my heartbeat is that you'll have an opportunity to reconnect with the Lord really, really well. I would love for you guys, as you come before the Lord this morning, as we wrap up here on our last Sunday of the fall, I'd love for you guys to come before the Lord and say, hey, Lord, do that for me. <laughs> would you call me forward? Would you give me an incredible opportunity this, this winter to know you more deeply, more richly than I ever have before? And might you use me in ways beyond anything I could imagine and to help give me the energy, the intentionality, and the sharpness to see your spirit moving and beckoning as you see fit.